welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, we have a great, great guest on today. You know, growing up in the Philadelphia area and, and graduating Stockton State in 1986, you know, I got to listen to this band's music a lot from the Dead Milkman, and he's... Uh, He's still making music, and he's he's an amazing talent. And my guest is should I call you Joe Gennaro or Joe Jack Talcum? You tell me which do you like, which do you prefer? Whatever, whatever you like. Where did Joe Jack Talcum come what, from? Where did Joe Jack Talcum come from? Um. <laughs> well, we all took uh, different names for our albums. Uh, Dean took Dean Clean when we decided to make an album, our first album. Um, they. Schultes took Dave Blood, and Rodney, of course, took Rodney Anonymous. And I was the last to choose my last name, but I was already known as Jack and Jack Talcum before that because of the the newsletter I created for the fictional band, the Dead Milkman. They were fictional, but I had a newsletter called the Jack Talcum Fan Club Newsletter. Now, I didn't think of myself as Jack Talcum when I was writing the newsletter back in... Uh, high school i just thought i was writing about some guy i wanted to make a a parody of a fan club newsletter about um and he uh became the leader of the band the dead milkmen who were made up punk band but as it occurred um we i made a tape with that dead milkman joe jack talking and the dead milkman band name on it with my neighbor Garth and some people in the neighborhood um, and Rodney heard it at school or he got a copy of it Garth gave him a copy of it at school I went to high school in Coastville with Rodney and uh, he liked it and wanted to be part of it and that's how that's when we started our writing songs together me and Rodney uh, Rodney and I or whatever and um, since I since band already had a name when we came, when we became a real band when we got Dean and Dave to join uh, we just kept the name the Dead Milkman we already had some songs written for it and recorded on our tapes so uh, I Rodney started referring to me as Jack so I I became Jack Talcum but instead of having just the Jack Talcum on our record, I thought about it at first. I decided uh, I've been called Joe or Joey in my whole life, so it would be weird to suddenly be Jack. So I just added Joe, Joe in front of it and became Joe Jack, Joe Jack Talcum. That's the long story. Well, well, no, that's good. Now, I want to ask you, because we're around the same age, and, you know, you you, yeah. you had the, the song, you came with the, you know, you were around the punk rock, but what were your influences mm-hmm. musically when you were a kid? Like, I had an older brother, so I listened to a lot of classic rock, And but what were your influences as a kid? What kind of music did you listen to? I listened to all kinds of music. As a kid, uh, in the 60s, I listened to Seven Inches uh, singles that my uncle gave to me um and they were just pop 760 stuff um in the 70s i listened to the radio so i would listen to am radio top 40 or fm radio which was progressive rock classic rock and whatnot also top 40 so it was a mishmash of 60s and 70s music what was on the charts and stuff i glommed on to like in bands like the Beatles and 
the Rolling Stones and uh, Bob Dylan, of course. I love Bob Dylan. And when I first heard the Ramones on the radio, <laughs> Rocket to Russia album, I really loved that. And they, they kind of reminded me of 60s music I liked, kind of bubblegum stuff, and but but uh, with a lot of energy. And I just thought that was cool, and I became a fan of punk rock music as a result. Now, I got into Sex Pistols and The Clash and stuff like that. Wasn't it a great time for music? I mean, you probably, you're from here, you probably listened to <laughs> MMR, or I mean, MMR, I remember hearing The Police and Joe Jackson for the first time on them, and I was, I, I was, it was something different. I mean, what state, did you listen to those stations when you were growing up? I listened to all those stations. Uh, MMR, yes. I think it was IOQ when they were playing album sides that heard Rocket to Russia for the first time, or at least one side of it. And there was, a, I forget the call letters, but there was a station around 92 that, I think it was Wi-Fi 92 or something, if that's possible. Yeah, Wi-Fi 92, I think. I listened to that. And for a short period of time, they were playing, a, I don't know, a new wavy punk uh, <laughs> playlist, including TV Party by Black Flag, believe it or not. But that didn't last more than a year. But yeah, Philly Radio was interesting enough. I mean, we had the progressive rock, classic rock, and so so what, there was an R and B station too. What what made you want to get into music? I mean, what made you decide? You said you had the the fictional band, but what made you decide to pursue music? Um, I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I liked it since I can remember. Like I like to listen to records as a kid. And did you want to be a musician then, or? Uh, I had a, an idea that I might want to become a songwriter when I, you know, by the time I was ten years old, and I did compose some really idiotic, but uh, songs as so I've been I was doing that from an early age. So. You go on, you, you you get together. Now, the Dead Milkmen start when you're, officially start performing when you're in te a temple, or when did they start? Yeah, I was a temple going to college for radio, television, and film. Uh, I guess I was in my third year when we became a band. The I met Dave at Temple because his brother went to Temple. He was in the same dorm as I was, and he was a punk rock guy. Uh, his brother, Joe. And he actually told me that Dave is look, a bass player looking for a band because I told him I'm looking, uh, I'm I'm looking for a bass player for a band I wanted to start. So he introduced me to his brother Dave, and we hit it off right away. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it was '83 when we played summer of '83 when we played our first show, and that was Dean that got us that show, and it was only a couple weeks after Dean joined the band. Dean rounded it off. To be a, he was our first and only drummer. <laughs> now, where did you guys play that first gig at? Do you remember? Um, it was in Harleysville, Pennsylvania, I think. Um, it was some kind of youth center. I forget the exact name of it. And what kind of tunes but were you? It, it what, was, what were you guys playing there? What was, kind of tunes were you playing? We were playing a lot of the songs that would end up on Big Lizard in My Backyard and Eat Your Paisley, our first two albums. 
there's we're playing right wing pigeons. In fact, during the song "Right Wing Pigeons," my amp uh, went out and had to borrow another amp from from another of the bands that were playing. And Rodney did some kind of ad lib that was really funny and awesome. And it was it was good to see at our first show that Rodney had a good uh, rapport with the audience and was a good front man. Now, what what was the Philly music scene, the landscape, like when you were starting to get out there? Because, you know, the, there's different bars, you know, I think Kyber Pass and all those other places. But what was the scene like as you were trying to break onto the scene? In Philly, there are bands like Sadistic Exploits, uh, The Stickmen, uh, bunny drums. It was kind of a varied. There was it was kind of vibrant and varied. Uh, the Fabulous Fondas, FOD, Flag of Democracy. So there are hardcore bands that were playing the fast stuff. That's that's around the time we got into the scene. Like Rod, I would go to shows. I started. I guess my first punk rock show was in 1982. I think in in the early part of that year. And I even got Rodney to go to a show that had a band called Narthex in it that had Dean as the drummer. Little did we know that within a little over a year, he would be in our band. But it was, there were new 80 bands and straight up punk bands and uh, hardcore punk bands. Well, it's funny. There's a lot of cover bands, too, because I was listening to some of the music earlier. I love him bitching Camaro that you you mentioned uh, Crystal Ship. And I remember there was Crystal Ship and there was Buff the Musket and there's all these weird names. But I just took me back to when you were, you talk bitching Camaro about Crystal Ship. I'm like, holy crap, I remember them. I remember seeing the Hooters a lot at band in their infancy when they were opening up for every band that you went to see. Every bigger band. So, so when do you guys start getting a lot of work? I mean, what was it like? When did you guys start really getting a buzz in the Philadelphia scene? Probably at, well, after, there was this show on Sunday nights on WXPN, back then called Yesterday's Now Music Today, and sometimes they had live bands playing. They had us play one Sunday, and after that, I think that was, that was instrumental in getting, getting our music out to a larger audience and having more people come to our shows and having, we, we, we. You know, we looked for every show we can get and tried to play every show possible back then. But uh, I think that was an inch, a milestone. And then, of course, after the Big Lizard album came out, Big Lizard in My Backyard had the song Bitchin' Camaro, and that that became like a college fav- college radio favorite. WXPN also back then was like University of Pennsylvania's college station. Um, but yeah, then college those types of stations across the united states were playing and we had more of a demand when we went out on our first tour in 85 in june of 85 um, we found that we were hard sell in other words on that tour but after that tour after uh, bishop camaro uh started get playing on the radio it was a lot easier to get gigs now, was it hard for you to get a record deal? I mean, how did you all go about getting the records? I know in, in your past, you know, later in your career, you've done a lot of cassettes and stuff like that. Yeah. But what was it like trying to get a record deal? 
we had already recorded 10 songs on our own from because we made our own cassettes and sold them at shows and we saved up enough for studio time um so we had 10 songs in this in the can as they say in the studio but we didn't have any more money left to press it up uh so we we saw we saw on one of the records that Dave had in his record collection, I think the band was called Get Smart out of Chicago, that their record was on a label called Fever Records and it was in Philadelphia. Not not only was it in Philadelphia, it was two blocks from the basement that we rehearsed in at the time in South Philly. And we paid him a visit in person with our cassette of songs the 10 songs were recorded in the studio and lo and behold the guy his name was colin said um he if, if i give you some more money uh can you record another 10 songs or so this is not long enough i think for now but if you record some more i'll put it out for you and we, we signed a deal with him as they say and that's how we got our first record out now, what was it like going into the, to the studio when you know that you know you were going to get it printed? I mean, when you knew it's when you do the cassettes, it's one thing, but it must be a great feeling when you know it's going to be an actual album. I mean, was that was it exhilarating for you guys? We went in the studio and recorded another ten or so songs. We didn't use them all, but we recorded. You know, we made it into an album. Uh, so we, the second time we knew, of course, we. I always thought it was going to be an album, no matter what. I, I thought at first we were going to put it out ourselves. That was the goal, but it turned out we that we'll, we had someone else put it out for us. But it it just felt really cool both times. And to me, in the studio, that was another milestone as being in a real studio. I had always dreamed of it. Um, my first time was making a record. <laughs> So it was a lot of fun. Now, now, what was it like? You know, you said you were a hard sell when you guys went on the road, but what was it like those early days of touring? I mean, was was it was it the grind? I, I did stand up comedy for eight years in the late eighties, early nineties, and it was a grind, man. You drive it like was fun, you grind. It's you, you drive three it. hours, four hours to a gig. But what was it like for you guys? Yeah, sometimes we sleep overnight in the van while people were driving. If we didn't have a place to sleep, we just go to the next town. If we could get a place, it would be on people's couches or floors or whatever, and they'd have a party till three in the morning or four in the morning. We're like, we have to wake up at seven. Oh, well, this is life on the road. Live it up, right? You can do that maybe one or two tours and then you get burnt out. But I'd say it was a lot of fun because I felt I, <laughs> I quit my job. I had a full time job and just quit it outright and said, I'm going on tour. We had Dave, Dave booked a lot of, Dave and Dean booked a lot of tour. But what happened also was a lot of the places we thought we had shows at, we booked them through the contacts section of a zine called Maximum Rock and Roll. When we actually got there, there was no show or it fell through. That happened maybe one in every four or five shows, the show fell through. And then what do you do? You try to get another show or try to get on another show or you do nothing. And of course, you need to make enough money for gas to get to the next place. It was pretty rough. Luckily, Dean had a credit card. He was the only one of us who did, being the responsible adult, I guess. Dean, the drummer. But we racked up out. We racked up a lot of debt on his credit card. So we did pay it back by doing subsequent tours eventually. But it was 
hit and miss. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Again, when I did, it, it was fun. We met a lot of people. We made contacts that we used in the future. Uh, we we met the Daniel Johnston on that tour. We stayed with Glass Eye in, in uh, Texas, in Austin. Uh, our, our, their bass, Glass Eye's bass player would be our future producer for three of our albums, the third, fourth, and fifth album. The fourth one had Punk Rock Girl on it. And the, so it, it was a good tour for a lot of reasons. We saw the, we got to meet the people at the record company that was uh, distributing the record, which was Enigma Records. So <laughs> tell, tell me about Punk Rock Girl, because it's funny. You know, I, I, actually, I got married four years ago. I actually played it at my wedding. That song that I played, Lou Reed, uh, Perfect Day. And everyone's like, what, what, that's a weird combination, Steve. <laughs> But I, I, I love that song. And it's funny, I, when I lived in L.A. and I got pissed off because I read the paper one time and they said, top California songs, and they said, punk rock girl. I'm like, no, 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 that's a Philly song. You know, but, but now, what, what, who wrote that? Was it all of you guys wrote that? Because I, I love that song. No, oh, thank you. Um, I wrote most of it. And I, I showed it to Dave, and, who's a bass player. And he he filled in some. I didn't have some lines. He wrote the line about Minnie Pearl and Do You Have a Bow. So he helped me out rhyming some lines that I needed to tell the story. But it was mostly there. And uh, we performed it uh, as we didn't think it was a Dead Milkman song. Honestly, I didn't think it was. Uh, kind of. Dave and I did a. a I guess you call it a side project, just him and me playing, not acoustically, but on electric at small bars in Philly. We called it Ornamental Wigwam. And we also made a home recording, home recorded tape. So we played it as, as that, as Ornamental Wigwam. But it got a good reaction. And, I, and a couple people at our show said that it, we should uh, play that as a dead milkman. We really should. So we presented it to the other guys. And they liked it, so we put it on our fourth album. So it's, we that. it starts becoming popular. Now, tell me about the video because it's great. You have you, know, you mentioned Zipperhead and you mentioned Mojo Nixon, and and it's just it's there's some great references that you have to know, else you you're out of it. But what when they came to do the video was it because that was videos were so big back then? Did the record company say here's how we're going to do the video, or did you guys say here's how we want to do the video? The only thing the record company ever did, and this is now I'm talking about Enigma Records, because we signed a deal with Fever, but Fever was just Colin. He was just one person, and he he sort of he didn't really get involved with any any uh, of the artistic side. He was only like I guess the business side. But the record company is the one thing that they demanded as far as videos were concerned, because they were, they were putting the money up, I guess, for the videos was the distributor Enigma records. Um, was that they, they picked the song that was going to be the video. And other than that, it was up to us. They gave us the budget. I don't remember the record company having any input, but a lot of the ideas that were in that video were the, the directors by uh, Adam Bernstein. He did our, our um, also did off a of big, uh, off of Bucky Fellini. He did the Big Time Operator video, 
where we have like the Frank and Elvis, Rodney dresses up and Rodney's like the Frank and Elvis. I don't know if you saw that video, but the punk rock girl video was shot in mostly in Philadelphia. We did go over to the Cherry Hill Mall from to grab some illegal scenes that we didn't have permission to do. But <laughs> the um, most of it was shot in Philly, and most most of that was shot. Well, we did a pizzeria in Philly, and then most of it was in a sound. What I guess you would call it a soundstage, but it was set up in. Eastern State Penitentiary, which back then it was just a derelict kind of place. Uh, it was before it became a, right now it's like a tourist attraction. You can go to it and it's a little more fixed up and there's exhibits and there were no exhibits back then. It was just a place to shoot a video. So that song, everyone, it gets a lot of airplay. How does that change your career? Do you do do, or does, do the tours become better, or do you get to open for people? Or how did that song change your career? Because now people saw it on MTV because people watched MTV because there's a lot into our shows. Um, I guess we're able to maybe demand a higher ticket price for better and worse. Uh, I think we got bigger shows because of it. Although that kind of leveled out, I mean, it was for the time being, you know, while it was on and while it was on MTV, we were, we were in demand for interviews and I guess the publicity snowballs in that, in that way. And we also were host on that, another show called 120 Minutes on MTV. I mean, that's where it started on 120 Minutes. That's the show that first played it, but we got to be hosts on that show. And we were also asked to be on Club M T V, which is kind of absurd because it's it's not a club song, it's a dance song. I mean you could dance to it, but that was weird. We did it. We did it, but it was weird. What did you have to do? What did you have to do in that show? Just perform the song live or a club? Lip sync. No, it's a lip sync. And they it was it was a format where they would have the band lip syncing. Uh, it was totally obvious that we were lip syncing because we weren't even trying, but and we're just making fun of the whole thing. But they interspliced the video, the 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 video that they show, the punk rock girl video, in with that, and they have dancers. They had the troupe of dancers that are regulars on the show dancing, and they instructed these dancers to do a mosh and to uh, you know, I, they might have even stage dived. I don't I don't remember, <laughs> but. But I do remember them being instructed to do how, <laughs> how you dance to our song. How how hard is it to lip sync? You're a performer, and I always think when you see it, it must be hard because don't you want to just say, "Fuck it, I'm going to sing." I mean, how hard is it? I don't think it's that hard, but I guess it it depends on how accurate you want to be. I guess I don't know. We. I did it for a few videos in that thing. <laughs> so, so, but it was just like whenever we had to do our video, the, I, I wasn't that fond of doing videos, honestly, but when I look back on it, I'm glad I did. It was an experience, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of sitting around, a lot of sitting around and waking up early. These people who are, who are in films wake up at like three or four in the morning. You got to, you know, to get, to get the sun at the right time at the right place 
Um, but <laughs> I'm glad we did them. I even with our first video, I wanted to see if they could hire other people to be us, and I kind of wanted to remain mysterious. I didn't even want to put our own photos on any of our records, but uh, I got outvoted on that. I didn't. At least I think we never, except for the uh, live album, we never put our photos on the front. Um, so that's something we kept throughout. Why did you want to, why, why is that? Cause you wanted to be, I mean, why that's, that's different. Like, why did you want to not have your photos? I wanted there to be some mystery to it and let people decide. And then I wanted actors to play us in different videos <laughs> and we could have different actors. I don't know. That was my concept, but it got that. Maybe that was one thing that the, I don't really know. Cause we had a manager who was, who interested, seated for us sort of a, a, as far as dealing with the record company so we what he wanted us to know the record company said he would tell us and i imagine there was probably stuff that he just kept to himself but maybe that was um <laughs> something that they wouldn't allow us is the the video is the rock is the band not to be in the video i don't know but it could have been my own bandmates that didn't want it i don't re really remember that now, the detail. what what was your writing style like? How did you write, and how do you write? I mean, did you come it's up with the, the words first, or, or or the music? How did you write? When I wrote songs that I wrote all of the song, stuff to, and I also did collaborations too, but especially once the Dead got started, but I would first think of it, think of the music. Um, I would play around with the music in my head and then like it would come as an idea, a musical idea, then try to figure out what, how to play it. Right. Either usually on piano first. Cause that's how, that's how it used. That's how I started was on piano and leap to guitar. Although now I'm probably more versed in guitar, but you know, I'd, I'd embellish it, work on it, and then then I would try to come up with lyrics that would match whatever melody I was doing. Sometimes the melody would be, the lyrics would be coming also in my head, like it would be a lyrical idea, but not a full one. So I would have that as a start or a scratch. But usually I would work music first. Um, unless somebody was asking for a specific song topic like we were trying Rod, Rodney or I were trying to write topically then I would write lyrics out and it would be the opposite I would get my rhythm rhyme lyric and then uh, ha put music to that so I guess it was it was those are the two <laughs> two ways that, that I had and probably still write music but when collaborating like with Dave he would have a bass part which would inspire a guitar part and then we together try to come up with another like so we play it ad infinitum we play it you know over and over until we liked what we were doing and then say what would go good with this how would another part work and come up with another part and just piece things together now now after punk rock girl after mm -hmm. that 
what what did the record company want from you guys? Did they want another hit? Did they want another punk rock girl? Because I always hear stories of musicians who they go, we need this. What was it like after that song hit? Interestingly, well, that was our last uh, record for Fever. We didn't renew the Fever contract, but we signed with Enigma Records, the same company that was uh, distributing and pressing records for Fever. Uh, yeah, of course they wanted another hit. Um, it didn't happen, <laughs> but they wanted another hit, and they picked another song off the next record that was one I sang. And I, this is when I found out that we couldn't. I wanted a song. I wanted a different song to be. I, it was Methodist Coloring Books' the song they picked. I didn't like that choice, but I was powerless to change it. Um, and maybe, maybe if Punk Rock Girl wasn't a Dead Milkman song and wasn't one that I sang instead of Rodney, Rodney's the main singer. And for example, in case you don't know, Punk Rock. I would sing one or two songs at the most on any album. And then on this third album, this fifth album, I mean, the one that came after Beelzebub, which had Punk Rock Girl on it, I sang three songs. The, and they chose one, of course, that I sang. I say, of course, probably maybe because the uh, because of the success of Punk Rock Girl. It's hard to, it's hard to say. I don't really know. It wasn't a hit, <laughs> and that was the end of our relationship with that record company. So, what eventually made you guys break up? I know you're doing a good example. What made you break up? Was were you guys just burnt? Were you just tired of the biz? I mean, I know a lot of people just get tired of the biz, and you're because and, it's it's a grind, and people people think that if you're a musician, like it's a, all stars, and, and but it's not. You guys work your ass off, especially when you're on the road doing morning radio, doing all that BS. Yeah, because Dave wanted to stay in the band, and I wanted to stay in the band, but the other two people didn't want to stay in the band. And yes, I think we were all tired of uh, touring as much as we were, uh, especially after we started touring throughout Europe as well. Um, as the United States, it seemed like that's all you do is make, you have to come up with an album put out an album and then you have to tour and <laughs> over and over, you know, for the, until it's time to put out another album and you have to somehow write that album and get it recorded. And Dean in particular, Dean was the first person to say, I don't want to be a part of the band. It's okay with me if you get another drummer. But then Rodney said, no, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore either. You're right. And we couldn't, Dave and I looked at it and said, well, we can't just replace Rodney and Dean and still be the dead milkman. I, maybe some bands would do that. I don't know, but we wouldn't, we couldn't do that. So we said it, we gave, we said, that's it. So what do you decide so, to do then? Cause you, you're, you know, you're a songwriter, you're a singer, you, you, you play guitar. Uh, I, I decided I need to get a job and I started, uh, I became a barista. Okay. And a coffee in center city uh slinging coffee and i actually worked my way up to be a part-time manager at least monday <laughs> monday manager <laughs> assistant manager that's what it was assistant manager and uh, that was an experience and that got then i got another job 
but in as I never stopped doing music, I was I was in a, a sort of side band called Touch Me Zoo back then, and we continued to do stuff. And I met up with a fan of the Dead Milkman who came to Philly to go to school at Temple, where I went to school, and we started writing songs together. And we formed a band called Town Managers, which worked into a band called Lo- The Low Budgets, and we made a lot of music together and toured over you know through, throughout the U.S. and Europe. And we, we put out like three records. So I did a record with Dean, but that wasn't a touring band with Dean and some friends who comprised uh, the Big Mess Orchestra, um, who were a part of the Big Mess Orchestra. Uh, they weren't the whole thing, but we called that Butterfly Joe, and we played some songs that uh, the Andy from that uh, band uh, chose from all the solo tapes I had made over the years. So I, I did a lot of stuff in the interim. And then the Dead Milkman, just as the low budgets started to dissolve after our second tour of Europe. Why did you dissolve? Why did the low budgets dissolve? Yeah. Because our main guy, uh, Chris, the guitar player and singer and main main songwriter, uh, decided that he was going to settle down in Berlin after our tour in uh, Germany ended. He, I guess he felt for somebody, some young gal in Germany and just decided to stay. And that's what he did. He stayed and didn't come back to the United States. And that's how we did. That's the beginning of our, we got, we got back together for a couple of reunions, but he's, He's, uh, I think, he's a German, German guy now. Like, <laughs> I mean, he has German children anyway, I should say. So, so, so the, the dead milkman come back. How did that, you guys get back together? That, that same year, at the end of that year, we got asked to play a festival and we said yes to it, which surprised me. I thought everybody else would say no, but lo and behold, everybody else said yes when we got asked individually if we wanted to do this festival gig called Fun 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 Fest. And it was so fun for us that we decided to stay together. And we didn't have Dave. Dave, unfortunately, passed away 2004, four years prior. But we asked uh, the bass player of the Low Budgets to uh, fill his shoes, Dave's shoes, and he did a pretty good job. He's still doing it. Uh, Dave Stevens, also known as Dandrew. Uh, so we got back together. Never would have imagined, never in my wildest dreams could I have foreseen that not only would we play a show, even three months prior to that happening, maybe five months prior to that happening, I forget. I think we had three months notice. So, <laughs> but yeah, this that that we would also get back together again on a permanent basis in 2009, 2009 the, the year after. What is that like? Like, it, it's, I always wonder, is it like, is it the feeling like if, if you were divorced from a wife and then you got married <laughs> to her again? Or, I mean, what was it like when you guys got back together? It's kind of good. It kind of it had both. I was elated at first, but I soon realized there are good, good points and bad points. But I think they're mostly good. So... <laughs> It's like getting, learning learning about each other's personalities over again and what, what's what you 
I I had a uh, a bunch of solo t- even before I realized that we would get back together permanently. I had solo. Sh- I was playing solo shows. I was doing tours, and I had a couple booked well in advance, and I wasn't going to cancel them. And I was also involved in another, a couple other side things, but one other side project that was taking time. So it was like, oh, now there's a lot of, and I had had a full-time job on top of that. So it's like squeezing in more time to do practice to play more Dead Milkman shows. And not only that, we wanted to make new music, put out new album, new a new album that Dead Milkman did. That was one of the stipulations of being a band, especially Rodney. Rodney's idea was you don't want to be a your own cover band or a, you know has been band that only plays songs from the eighties. He wanted to be relevant now, so why not write songs? And he's very prolific, so it made sense. Now. How often do you guys play live now? Since 2009, how often do the Dead Milkmen play together? Not as often as we did in the 80s. So it would be like we would play at most three or four shows in a row. I think our longest tour was in 2015. It might I might have the year wrong. But it, yeah, it was after we released, I guess, our second album as the new outfit. We did a West Coast tour, which was 10 days. That's the longest we ever toured in our new formation. So we only do like weekend jaunts. Now, on the new, the, new, the newer albums, you said Rodney is, does a lot of writing. Are you also involved with the writing on the newer albums? I am, not as much as I used to uh, in the older albums. Uh but we all write together. I think that we just worked on an album. It's we hope will come out sometime this year, but I don't know. I can't say. Uh, it was very collaborative, but still, I'd say of all the full songs that Rodney writes, complete songs that they're almost on. They're too good to change. You know, <laughs> they're just that's the way they are. And um, Dean. Sometimes, but rarely, we'll write a complete full song. But he contributes either lyrics. Or he'll put. We have Dropbox that we share stuff on. Uh, lyrics up with no music, and somebody like me or Dan Stevens will write music to it, or he'll put up a song without an instrumental, or just an instrumental saying, take these parts or whatever, or take it as it is, but it needs lyrics, do whatever if you want. I'll put lyrics to it, or Rodney will put lyrics to it. But I still write complete songs like I do. I I don't, I guess I'm, a lot of stuff I write is not really Dead Milkman material. Well, how, and how? I don't want to, <laughs> like it would have been maybe on the soul rotation album that we did, but not what we're doing now. Now, how has your writing style changed as you've gotten older? Like your lyrical yeah. content, has it changed a lot? Changed enough or changed at all. Uh, I still write, I I still have this the, the same subject matter I like to write about love and truth and what is life all about kind of stuff and my own mopey 
songs I would write if I get down and I just want to write a song to make me be happier again. <laughs> so what's the future of the dead milkman and what's the future of you? I mean, what, what do, would you like to carry, you know, solo and that, I mean, what do you, what, what do you want to do in the next few years? Oh, I, I, I want to keep making music. I want to see, it's hard for me to tell in the next few years. I just go, you know, this is what I'm working on now. I'm working on songs now. Hopefully, I'm, it'll be a collaboration uh, with someone I admire uh, the music of, and we'll see what happens there. Um, but yeah, it just takes time. I, you know, it's for some reason I don't. It's like there's so many adult things you have to do when you're a kid. You have all this time and. You can you don't think about how long is this process going to take, and that's kind of like the mindset I get into when I'm when I'm uh, working on music is just sit down and and do it and see where it takes me. I don't really have a game plan for for my music solo wise. For the Dead Milkman, uh, we get together on a yearly basis and have a meeting. I mean, back in the day, we'd have a monthly meeting as far as, or a bi-monthly business meeting back, back when we were, when the, the band was our occupation. Now it's more of like a side thing. Um, uh, but we have a yearly meeting and we plan it out. And as far as I know, the plan is that when this album comes out, we've, we've, we're already booking shows. I can't really say what they are yet. They can't be announced, but, We'll be playing some shows, and I can't tell you when the album's coming out because we don't even know the date. <laughs> but we're I'm banking on it being sometime this summer or fall. We'll see because that would align itself with playing more shows and just you know hope that it, the album gets an audience and we sell all the copies that get pressed up. Well, dude, that's awesome. I, I want to thank you for coming. As I said, I I, I, I listen I listen to punk rock girl like once a week. I just you know I always do it. But uh, people, so how can people get in touch with you? Uh, with the Dead Milkman or you? I know the, the your website's JoeJackTalcom dot com. Yes, JoeJackTalcom dot com. They can email me at Joe at JackTalcom dot com. So the email address is JackTalcom dot com without the Joe um, and you can connect to that uh, website jacktalcom.com it's a website too uh, securely if you want uh, you can also uh, send me snail mail at uh, post office box 112 Wagontown PA one nine three seven six Wagontown is W A G O N T O W N. So that's P.O. Box one one two. Although I don't think too many people are sending snail mail these days, but you can, I still like it. Cool. Well, I want to thank you. So people go check them out. Uh, go check it. <laughs> Check that bill come out. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 945 episodes. Email me at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.